0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we review fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia Pacific region. Many of us who may be art historians have an idea of the Silk Road merchants who carried silk from China to as far away as ancient Rome in one of the first global trading networks. Historians now have since challenged that idea that there really was such an organized network, instead seeing it as a 19th century metaphor that obscures more than it explains. But Xinwen, the author of The King's Road, Diplomacy, and the Remaking of the Silk Road, tries to revive the idea that there really was a Silk Road, at least for the people of Dunhuang, what is now China's Gansu province. His book explains that there really were convoys traveling back and forth along an established route, though they likely saw themselves as diplomats more than more than merchants he writes quote people in dunhuang of course did not exactly call the road that connected them with their neighbors the silk road nevertheless had they been asked about it they likely would have found the phrase entirely intelligible even meaningful Wen is professor of east asian studies at princeton university his research interests in medieval china also include manuscript culture urban history and digital humanities Today, Xin Wei and I talk about the Silk Road, the Dunhuang Archive, and the risks of orienting too much of the history of Central and East Asia around China. So, Xin, thanks for coming on the show today. Your book centers around um, Dunhuang and, I guess, a, a body of documents that's, that's called kind of the, the Dunhuang Archive. Um, so, I guess, two questions to start. Where is Dunhuang and what was this collection of documents?
2: Uh, so yeah, first of all, thank you for the invitation. Uh, Dunhuang is uh, in the uh, province of Gansu uh, now in western China, It's at the western end of the west, uh, the province of Gansu, bordering uh, Xinjiang. So it's uh, uh, quite uh, uh, you know west uh, in terms of the geography of China. Um, the Dunhuang archive. Uh, this is sort of my language uh, this basically refers to a small cave uh, now when you go to Dunhuang, Dunhuang is very you know famous for its mural paintings uh in this uh, uh collection of uh, uh stone uh, uh of of caves uh for buddhist mural paintings called the uh grotto of the uh, thousand buddhas um there are many, many capes, uh, and some of them are very large, and many of them have very uh, beautiful, intricate mural paintings. But the Dunhuang archive, uh, that this you know collection that I call uh, uh, Dunhuang documents, they are found, or they were found uh, in the year 1900 in one of the smaller capes, uh, maybe one of the smallest capes of the many hundreds of caves in this uh, Buddhist complex, uh, generally people call it the Library Cave because uh, what is contained there uh, were a, a a huge collection. Um, the numbers are, you know, people don't agree on how many uh, uh, books or documents uh, come from the that cave, uh, primarily because it's impossible to count. Um, uh, because some of them are really big, you know, and then some of them are just uh, one piece of paper. But roughly you can say that there are about 60,000 items or books or manuscripts um, that came from this cave. And this cave was sealed up uh, around the first uh, decade or maybe the second decade of the 11th century, which means that everything that's sealed up in this library cave are from uh, essentially before the year 1000. Uh, I call this collection uh, of documents that I use uh, from this cave, uh, the Huang archive, because I'm mostly focusing on the uh, secular documents. So this Cave is primarily Buddhist, so ninety percent of the manuscripts are Buddhist. But uh, there are these um, non-Buddhist texts that were uh, collected by, you know, what we assume were Buddhist library uh, keepers, who uh, used these texts or the as papers to uh, paste on the backside of the Buddhist uh, Buddhist manuscripts to support them. Uh, in some other cases, they were probably kept, uh, uh for future use. Um, so these sub-collection, uh, this sub-collection this sub-collection of secular documents is what I call the Dunhuang archive of documents. And, uh, they were stored in the Dunhuang library cave, but, uh, their nature is uh, somewhat different from the uh, Buddhist uh, manuscripts that were also kept in the uh, cave. So, what is what's this part of the world like
1: at this time? I mean, politically speaking, like who are the big, who like what's the state of these different kingdoms and polities in this part of the world during this period of time you're 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 studying?
2: Right. So, uh. I just mentioned that the cave was uh, sealed up in around, you know, 1010, uh, early, early 11th century. And this is a time when you think about the, polit- the political history of uh, Eastern parts of Eurasia or, you know, this area that we call China now. Um, this is the moment of really extreme political fragmentation that uh, if you uh, dial the clock back uh, about, uh, you know, two centuries. There were really only three major empires in this area: the turco Uyghur Empire in the north, the Tibetan Empire to the west, and then the Chinese uh, Tang Empire in the east. Uh, and and Dunhuang was uh, located at the intersection of these uh, three great powers. But around the middle to the uh, to the towards the end of the uh, the ninth century, all three of these empires uh, fell uh, one after another. And what happened after the fall of these empires is that uh, you began to have many many independent smaller independent kingdoms. Uh, in Chinese history, we call this period the uh, era of the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms. Uh, there are too many to name, so we just give them a numerical uh, title. Um, uh, in But this is not only uh, is the situation in China uh, or in China proper um, in the former Tang land, uh, because if you go uh, further to the west, the area around Dunhuang, you see similar uh, kinds of political fragmentation that this the oasis uh, of Dunhuang was its own independent kingdom from uh, 849, 848 to the uh, early um, uh, 12th century. So, for uh, uh, you know, a hundred, almost 200 years, uh, Dunhuang was an independent kingdom. And then there are uh, other independent kingdoms around Dunhuang. There are four or five very important ones that I talk about in this book. Uh, so basically, politically speaking, this is an era of fragmentation of smaller kingdoms of, uh, of, of you know, uh, at the same time an absence of imperial power.
1: So your
2: book is is
1: about the quote unquote Silk Road. Um, and I know that's a term that has been uh kind of the right word to use. I, I'm going to use the word deconstructed. I don't quite. Perhaps mean that, but it, but it, but it's a term that's been challenged i think by 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 some recent history um how do we how do we and I mean kind of we as the general historians think about the Silk Road, and then what is your book reacting to in that in that common view today?
2: Well, so this is a term that, uh, well, first of all, this is a term that uh, was uh, in- invented uh, by uh, by Ferdinand von Richthofen in uh, 1877. Uh, now, you know, the recent research that uh, that shows that in German academia, there, uh, people have been using this term before him, but he was really the first person to kind of, uh, give it a concrete uh, meaning and and, and and use it to describe concrete historical uh, um, phenomena. So what he meant by this term was essentially that he was reading uh, Greco-Roman sources and he was reading Chinese sources, uh, I think translated Chinese sources, and then he was making connections about how and at what point did Chinese silk uh, enter the Roman Empire. Um, so this term for him describes the connection between essentially the Han Dynasty in China on the one hand, and then the Roman Empire uh, in the Mediterranean world on the other hand, and the uh, route that uh, took Silk to uh, the West. So between him and, uh, and us, uh, there have been many, many research uh, on this idea, uh, this idea has been picked up by uh, not just historians and scholars but you know musicians like yo-yo ma and uh, I think there's a a dark web uh, a website uh, called the Silk Road right this is sort of a very ingenious uh, kind of concept that 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 uh, used a you know fairly romantic reference uh, and then uh, try to uh, try to use it uh, to describe a uh, an actual historical phenomenon. So more recently, scholars, like you said, have been uh, um, casting... Well, I, I would say there are, uh, roughly speaking, you can maybe say that there are two groups of scholars uh, if we divide them uh, uh, according to their attitude towards this term. Uh, there are people who continue to embrace the term uh, and and very often this term is used uh, for uh, scholars who are interested in global history, right? This is a way for us to look beyond the uh, national units that so often determine how we tell our history, and and look at the uh, transnational and transregional connections that that we know were uh, always there, um, but. For another group of scholars who, uh, I guess, more work more closely on the area of Central Eurasia, uh, there has been some doubts. Uh, there had, had there there are doubts about uh, whether we should continue to use this term. First of all, because you know it has this uh, colonial uh, legacy from the nineteenth century, and uh, people have uh, obviously found that. Uh, silk was by no means the only, uh, or at you know at times uh, not even the most important goods that were transmitted uh, between uh, eastern and the western end of the Eurasian continent. Uh, there are many other things, uh, uh, and then you know often you don't really see a clear road either. Uh, uh, often you see shifting path uh, or a collection of networks. So. Um, With, you know, the growth of our knowledge, um, uh, this term seems less and less uh, uh, sort of applicable to the historical uh, primary source that that we discovered. Um, But I I sort of make this uh, argument, and this is not something that I set out to do uh, when I wrote this book. Uh, obviously, you know it's good to, uh, to talk about this phenomenon that people are interested in, but when I started the research of this book, uh, which is essentially consists of, of reading uh, all the secular documents that were stored uh, in the Dunhuang cave, I just wanted to test if this is an idea that is uh, valid on the basis of the primary sources what I found uh, somewhat to my surprise was that, in fact, uh, you know, this is actually a pretty good term. uh, If you have to come up with a term to describe what you find in the Donghuang documents. So my method uh, was essentially that I collected the examples that I can find of long distance travelers. and, And that just means people who have traveled you know, hundreds of kilometers, sometimes over a thousand, uh, uh, even thousands of kilometers. Uh, I collect cases of long distance travel uh, that involve both people and things. So I collect examples of human travelers and non-human travelers. uh, And I kind of, the the book is essentially an attempt at uh, reconstructing their life on the road. Uh, the two things that I've found uh, uh, that really kind of convinced me that this is a term that's worth using is first that silk was really important. Silk was everywhere. Uh, everyone was traveling with silk. Uh, but uh, uh, most importantly, silk was also both a gift that uh, that these travelers exchanged and, and, and used uh, uh, to kind of uh, 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 facilitate their relationship with their hosts, uh, it is also a commodity that were used uh, locally in Dunhuang um, uh, to buy and sell uh, uh, other things. So, in this sense, and and and, and here I should I should uh, add a note that by silk I also uh, when I when I when I talk about silk I also kind of include other. Uh, precious textiles like cotton cloth and and other uh, types of cloth. So these sort of textiles were the most versatile of the goods that were that traveled with the uh, with these travelers. So that's number one. The second discovery was that the idea of the road was actually also very central to the life of these travelers. They talk about the road all the time. They pray for safety on the road. Uh, They, uh, uh, describe the road, uh, in their writings and, uh, there in many places on the, you know, long route, uh, from central Asia to, to China, uh, we know that there were roads. Uh, So the idea of a road was also not uh, very uh, problematic to me. So once I found, uh, once I sort of dug into the primary sources a little bit more, it became more and more clear to me that uh, the idea of the Silk Road was actually a pretty valid uh, concept that we should uh, continue to embrace and obviously define right with precision in the context of a particular work and try to explore. But fundamentally, I think these two elements were central to how people communicated long distance in the medieval time.
1: All right, so, let, I mean, so let's talk about some of the people that that traveled the Silk Road. Um, you know, again, I think I think in the popular conception and the way it's normally uh uh the way it's normally slotted into, you know, global histories, uh the Silk Road is seen as a as a trade network. These are merchants traveling back and forth. But you focus much more on diplomats, on envoys. Um so I guess who, who were the what were the kinds of people, the kinds of groups that actually uh made these journeys on the Silk Road?
2: Right. So this is I guess this is another, maybe you can call it discovery, uh, uh, of this book. Um, I, I really started out, uh, this was my dissertation, uh, that I defended in 2017. So I started research for this project around, you know, 10 years ago, 2012, 2013. Uh, I really wanted to write a history about long distance traveling, uh, merchants. Uh, I was very inspired by uh, Etienne de la Vesey's books, uh, uh, his book on the Sogdian traders. Uh, I wanted to write a book about Dunhuang traders, uh, traders that uh, travel long distance, uh, 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 whose life we can reconstruct from Dunhuang uh, documents. But I couldn't find any. Uh, the entirety of the Dunhuang corpus. I mean, I. I might've missed something, but I went through uh, most of the secular documents and I could only really find uh, two, three, you know, maybe cases of, where people actually traveled for business. They talk about it in that way, right? They went somewhere to buy things, uh, travel long distance to do that, uh, that are documented uh, uh, in the Dong documents. But in the process I discovered another group, uh, and and this sort of the this thing just sort of comes at you, continues to come at you. Uh, once you open the uh, uh, these uh, these volumes of, uh, of secular documents, that uh, the overwhelming majority of travelers, that long distance travelers that we can find uh, in the Dunhuang documents, were traveling for diplomatic purposes. Uh, there are you know, a substantial number of Buddhist travelers. And these groups also overlap. Some Buddhists would travel on behalf of their home state as a diplomat while maintaining their status as a Buddhist. Uh, there are also Buddhists who travel for purely uh, uh, religious reasons, right? They just want to go to India for pilgrimage. Um, uh, uh, so there's some overlap. Uh, but overwhelmingly, the ones that you discover are diplomatic travelers. And they're really, they can be uh, uh, almost anything that you encounter in these documents. Uh, there's some cases of really poor people, uh, slaves even, who uh, traveled, uh, who at least wanted to travel as diplomats in order to change uh, their fate, to to improve their economic uh, status. Um there are, you know, unsurprisingly, uh, officials, many officials who traveled uh, as, uh, as diplomats. But you also see a lot of kings, uh, the king of Dunhuang or the princes, uh, queens, these uh, people who stood at the top echelon of the, of the Dunhuang and, and certain neighboring societies, they often traveled themselves as diplomatic travelers. Uh, to their neighboring states. Uh, And then, you know, this is sort of the group of people, uh, right? And and we also see a few examples of actually uh, female travelers traveling as diplomats. Um, But in addition to these people, there are also another group of non-human travelers like elephants, monkeys, uh, uh, horses and camels. And then, uh, you know, more inanimate uh, things like jade, silk, books, food, water, uh, uh, equipment to uh, cook food in, uh, anything you you can think of, uh, uh, really, for uh, this particular period of time, uh, you can almost find all of these, you can find all of these people and things uh, uh, travel together on uh, diplomatic missions.
1: So what would what might someone traveling on the Silk Road what might they have seen? I remember part in one part of your book you talk about there actually were kind of like there were checkpoints there there were stations there was kind of infrastructure kind of along along this road it wasn't just a a dusty trail of the desert I guess um, so like what 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 kind how how built up was was the Silk Road I guess. <sighs>
2: Right. So this is something that I uh, uh, talk uh, in particular in chapter four. Um, it, what I found in writing that chapter and, and especially relying on a itinerary uh, of a group of Dunghuang diplomats as they travel through the southern part of uh, of Mongolia uh, was that they have a pretty clear sense that uh, the kind of places that they they were traveling through and they were traveling through different kinds of places. It's definitely not all paved you know highways. Uh, uh, there's uh, I guess that uh, that's that's a, a fantasy uh, right but it's also not all deserts and you know stretching uh, long stretches of sands that uh, that makes it very difficult to travel. That that that's the impression that we get from some earlier travelers. Um, that in this uh, in the Donghuang documents, what you find uh, is that there are uh, a number of different types of stops that one can stop at. Uh, there are these postal stops that were built by the large empires, such as the Tang. And the song that once you get within the domain of these states, you're basically very well taken care of. There are postal uh, uh, inns that you can stay in. Uh, there are there there are people who can uh, escort you from one place to another that you don't even need to understand the the, the geography anymore. Um, so that's one kind, right? You have the postal road, and then but these states, the border of these states don't. And where the postal road uh, stops, they uh, also extend further back into uh, the, the the you know beyond their the, the, their frontiers, and and often there were um, military establishments um, uh, that were not connected with or to the network of postal roads that, but that were nonetheless uh, uh, still considered part of these uh, these states. And the travelers often would stay uh, in these military establishments uh, as well. And you could sort of imagine that the roads between the military est- establishment and the postal, the official postal roads, were probably not as good as the postal roads themselves, uh, but were uh, probably also not uh, merely just uh, unmarked and un. Tended uh, 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 sort of mass of land, so that's the second type. And then you also see them describing stopping, describing themselves stopping at places that I call natural stops. These are places where there are water. You know, water sources are important for any traveler. So when there isn't a military or a governmental uh, establishment, they simply stop. Uh, in places where there are water. And between these you know, areas w- with water sources, uh, you can sort of, what I imagine, right, this, this is uh, not very well recorded. What I imagine this will be like when we go hiking now, there are markers left by uh, earlier travelers and there are probably a footpath that you can detect uh, uh, on the road. Uh, but maybe there isn't very well uh, uh, maintained road uh, in this area. And then the last type is uh, what you mentioned. This is sort of the common uh, um, image that we often associate with the Silk Road, which is the desert. Desert uh, deserts uh, uh, does deserts do and and, and did exist, uh, particularly to the west of Donghuang. And these these deserts are. Excuse me. Um, These deserts, um, um, I guess, what I found um, uh, from the documents that really surprised me was that uh, they talk about these deserts. They talk about parts of the desert where you have to carry water to travel because there is no water source. Uh, But traveling in deserts themselves, itself, this action itself was. Uh, apparently quite routine. Uh, it was not as difficult as we uh, we think. And and in fact, I uh, calculated the speed on the basis of a few documents. And it seems that traveling the desert didn't even slow these travelers down, which I guess in some ways makes sense, right? If you're in a desert, you just want to get out as quickly as possible. Um, but uh, But there must have been also markers Uh, in the desert that help people orient themselves. Earlier sources tell us that, you know, people who travel in the desert use uh, bones of dead people and animals uh, uh, as marker. That might have been the case. Uh, I think there must have been uh, less gruesome markers uh, for our travelers too.
1: So kind of, I think near the, I believe near the end of your book, you kind of come to the conclusion that um, diplomacy, you know, quote unquote, is... Was was critical to the people li- living in um, living in Dunhuang. Um, I guess critical to their economy, critical to their society. I, I guess what was it like? Why was diplomacy so important to this community?
2: Well, so this question, uh, I guess, to answer this question, I, I I have to first establish that diplomacy was important to uh to these people. Um, this was a process. I, I, I did not realize this. Uh, I sort of went into this project. Uh, well, like I said, first I wanted to write about the merchants, and then I realized I can't write about them because they didn't really exist. Uh, then uh, I, I I switched to to writing about the diplomats. Uh, and but my assumption was that they were essentially only important for policymakers, for people who wanted to have good relations with their neighbors. They send a diplomat to their neighboring state and then they negotiate their relationship. But the more I read, uh, uh, the more uh, uh, I kind of began to doubt that picture. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a few examples, right? There are all these contracts that were made in Dunhuang. Uh, uh, you know, when people make a uh, have a, a economic uh, transaction, they create a contract to make sure that both parties would uh, stick to the terms uh, after the, the the transaction was concluded. And among the contracts uh, found in Dunghuang there are about 40%. And, and this is a random selection of, uh, of economic uh, documents, right? It deals with every aspect of the life of people in Donghuang. You know, you buy a house, you use a contract, you buy a slave, you use a contract, you hire someone to work for you, you use a contract. But of all these contracts, about 35 to 40% of all these contracts are about diplomatic travelers, uh, in fact, they're specifically made when people have to borrow something in order to fund their diplomatic journey. So, this really kind of stopped me on my tracks a, a bit uh, once I realized this. Because, you know, when we think about modern uh, uh, economy in any state that we uh, live in, uh, diplomacy. Itself, right? Not the things that diplomacy accomplishes, but the functioning of of diplomacy itself is never really a huge part of the economy. Uh, So once I realized that, I I began looking in other aspects of the life of uh, of Dunhuang and and other similar uh, uh, OEC states. Uh, I found. And this is a document that uh, that only exists in a neighboring state. Uh, I haven't found anything similar to uh, uh, similar in Dunhuang, but I think it, it sort of shows uh, uh, illustrates the, this point very really well. And this is a document that I also talk about in the book that were discovered in a neighboring uh, oasis uh, state, also independent state in uh, Turfan, in the uh, late fifth century that essentially lists all the people that the Turfan government sent out to help escort uh, foreign diplomats who travel through Turfan. So this is a service industry, right? You have people who help uh, uh, escorts who come in and then just travel with them uh, outside of your state. Within the space of one year uh, in that document, uh, uh, that document tells us that there, there were... About 1,400 people, presumably all men, who worked in uh, this particular role. Uh, So now the population of Turfan at that time uh, we know. So this means that about 15 to 20% of all male adults were engaged in this very specific act of escorting foreign envoys. So these are just two examples that have many other. Uh, uh, examples to show that diplomacy was really a central uh, uh, industry, if you uh, can use that word, to uh, the smaller, uh, these small oasis kingdoms on the Silk Road, uh, like Dunhuang, like Turfan. And the reason is pretty, you know, simple in a way, right? These are small states, they need to maintain their own legitimacy. Uh, So having connection with their neighbors is uh, is very important to them. Uh, and, and this is uh, the source of their uh, very often their source of their uh, 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 political legitimacy. Uh, and so these kings were very keen on sending people out to their neighboring states. And these diplomats, in the process, also gain profit by, you know, uh, exchanging gifts, by sometimes doing business on the side, um, that they also have something to gain. So to people like Dunhuang, what I discovered, what I think, uh, you know, I'm trying to show in this book is that uh, diplomacy was not just a specialized branch of the government. It is a central institution uh, in the society that uh, many more people than uh, that than what we're used to uh, in uh, in our time uh, were engaged in diplomacy. They're engaging diplomacy in different ways, uh, but their life, uh, but diplomacy was implicated in their life in, uh, in 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 the economic sense, in the political sense, even ideologically, right? In a lot of the prayers. These Dunhuang people, even commoners, but also you know kings and officials, they will pray for uh, the smooth functioning of diplomacy. So diplomacy was really a central uh, uh, institution in the life of these uh, uh, these uh, the people who lived in these uh, medieval oases.
1: So I think I have, I have one more question, and this gets to something you 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 talk about in the conclusion to your book you know I, I i was struck by an observation that you make in your which is that china you know being such a large country such a long lasting civilization um tends to warp the history of uh, areas around it you know in, in kind of in much the same way that history in western europe tends to do we always complain about eurocentrism for example um which you avoid you you're, you try to avoid doing that in your book you call it you call it eastern eurasia you know, what do we gain by looking at these regions kind of on their own terms, as opposed to as part of some grand Chinese history?
2: Well, so I think what we gain uh, in this particular case, which, you know, this book, you can, you can almost, I, I, I was in one of the versions of the introduction, I call it a microhistory. Uh, I think it really is a microhistory of Dunhuang. Uh, and, and, you know, it's neighboring states, but, but it's really uh, a, a, a history that's focused on this particular place. It's a very small place. Um, the benefit of doing so is that you begin to see that a lot of the things that you assume you know uh, by studying Chinese history in the grand and uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, in the traditional kind of way uh, began to uh, collapse. Uh, for instance, the uh, I think the best example to show this is uh, to look at uh, the the system that is used to describe uh, uh, Chinese world order, right? The uh, the tributary system. When we think of uh, history of diplomacy in China, that's often the first thing that comes to mind. How that's how you know a lot of Chinese uh, uh, emperors. Um, imagine that they uh, uh, organize or uh, they want to uh, imagine that uh, that's how their diplomatic world uh, was organized by, by you know these foreigners, these uh, second, third tier countries coming to China to give tribute. But if you look at the case in Dunhuang uh, and it's especially uh, Dunhuang's dealings with uh, areas that's further to the west, you see that the language and the assumptions of the tributary system uh, cannot really hold. Uh, I'll just give you one example. Uh, in the uh, uh, 1970s, uh, when uh, the neighbor of Dunhuang, uh, Khotan, uh, scored a huge victory uh, over the kalahan further to the west, um, uh, the king of Dunhuang wrote to the, uh, the Han. Uh, wrote to the king of Khotan. Um, and in the letter, which is written in Chinese, he compared the king of Khotan to the founder of the Han Dynasty, uh, Liu Bang, um, uh, Han Dynasty in China. Uh, that is, and he called himself a uh, uh, an official uh, or a, a ser- ser- servant to the king of Khotan, whom he uh, called Huangdi, uh, emperor. Uh, and the king of Khotan himself called himself actually in Khotanese uh, king of kings of China. Uh, and, and in Chinese, in the Chinese documents produced by the Khotanese kings, uh, they called themselves uh, the great uh, Han uh, son of heaven uh, of Khotan, uh, Da Tian Han Tianzi. So when you look at these uh, examples, you realize that the assumptions of the tributary system, which is central to how we understand China's foreign relations, uh, really stopped working uh, here. Not only did it stop working, it was turned on its head. That now a Khotanese, you know, which is a Iranian-speaking person, is sitting on top, and the uh, King of Dunhuang, which primarily is a Chinese-speaking state. Um, was paying tribute to this uh, non-Chinese uh, king, so this is you know one of the many ways that I think uh, uh, you know focusing on something else, something that's not traditionally covered in uh, Chinese history, at least in this period, uh, can uh, 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 change how we uh, understand a lot of the basic assumptions that we have about Chinese history. But the last, uh, but there's one more point that I want to make, which is. Uh, I'm also not trying to, and this is sort of why I decided not to call it a microhistory. I don't want to uh, write a book that is not about China either. Uh, I think what this book is trying to do is to redefine what we mean by Chinese history, because um, uh, once we get into the Song Dynasty, so this is you know starting nine, uh, uh, by the year uh, 960. Uh, when we talk about Chinese history, we essentially talk about the area that's covered uh, by the domain of the Song. So all the places that used to be part of the Tang uh, no longer were a part of Chinese history uh, anymore. So one of the things that I try to show in this book is is, is that uh, connections uh, did not uh, disappear uh, by 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 any means. That there were a lot of people traveling back and forth. What's happening in the Song were were uh, were having profound impact on what uh, went on in Dunhuang and in Khotan and all these other uh, states that we should understand. Uh, you know, this is sort of a greater uh, version of Chinese history, redefining Chinese history as Eurasian history. That we should look at all these different places in the context of the uh, fall of the Tang Dynasty, and 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 connect their stories into a new uh, uh, history of China.
1: Well, I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Xin Wen, author of The King's Road, Diplomacy and the Remaking of the Silk Road. Xin, I actually have two final questions for you, which are uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you? What might the next project be?
2: Uh, So the book is available everywhere uh, that you uh, you get books. Right. Uh, so uh, the it, so it's not hard to find. Uh, it's the King's Road. Uh, you can find anywhere uh, 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 all the usual suspects. Um, what is next? Uh, I have been working on this totally unrelated, or maybe not totally unrelated, uh, given my answer to the last question. Um, this new project, which is a urban history of the city of Chang'an, uh, they. Is or well, that was the capital of the Tang Dynasty. So in this project, I'm also interested in what happened after the fall of the Tang Dynasty. Uh, but uh, but in the new project, I'm focusing more on the city of the, the capital city of Chang'an, which you know uh, was the largest city in the medieval world, one million people, you know, larger than this, than island of Manhattan, um, and how it shrank. Uh, in the space of one to two years, uh, to about one sixteenth, one seventeenth its original size, and stay that that way for five hundred years, and people just lived in the ruins of this big imp- uh, big imperial capital. So I want to explore the history of how people did that, and what happened to this huge ruin, and what the implications of this is to our understanding of Chinese history. So this is what I'm working on now. Uh, hopefully, you know, there will be something to uh, uh, for the readers to see uh, soon uh, in a few years.
1: So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReview of com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Uh, we hope you subscribe to the AsiaView Books podcast now on all your favorite podcast apps—Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more news and who's coming up on the show. But before then, thank you, Sin, for
2: joining me today. Thank you very much.